as you know, Lent is a time for us to be examining and strengthening our relationship with God. Often it is helpful to hear from another about his or her own struggles to believe in God, in Jesus, and the difficulty in trusting someone, some being that we cannot see, especially when we are facing life's trials. We can't see the big picture, only what is happening in our life right here and right now. And even when life is moving along smoothly, we mainline Protestants tend to keep our faith restricted to our pri private sphere of our lives. In what is now the very pluralistic society in which we live, and in our desire to be inclusive, accepting, tolerant, respectful, we do not push what we believe on others. The passage we are about to hear from the Gospel of John is familiar to many. The story of the Pharisee Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in the dark of night. And the quote about God loving this world so much that he gave his son that we might be saved. The writer says at the end of the Gospel that the purpose of the writing is to bring readers to the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, our Savior, who offers us eternal life. Let us put aside what we know, what we've heard before, and listen with open hearts and open minds. Perhaps we will hear the familiar stories with new ears. Scripture reading this morning is from the gospel, from, uh, is from John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. It can be paid, found on page 92 of your Pew Bible in the New Testament. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after being, having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with the Spirit who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you, a, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, 
How can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent into the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. May God bless our understanding of these readings. When I was a child growing up in New Jersey, I liked to climb up into the apple tree, my apple tree. There were several others, but this one was perfect for climbing and settling down with my back against the trunk of the tree, looking out at whatever was there. There I would sit in the midst of the sweet fragrance of spring blossoms or in the fall, enjoying the fresh-picked apple that I cut with my very own Girl Scout knife. And I would look out on the world, all around me, or up into the heavens to ponder the movement of the clouds and the flight of birds. And I would think, what a wonderful world God has made. You see, once Sunday school and my parents told me about God, everything seemed to make sense for me. God was in God's heaven and all was right in my world. Such innocence. I could easily imagine the holy being creating all that is. All that I heard, all that I saw. Who else could? How else could all of this exist? And even when I learned about the Big Bang Theory, it didn't bother me because it was God that started the Big Bang. I still believe science and theology can walk hand in hand. We've just got to get there. For God so loved the world. I wondered as a child how God sees the world. I thought of the photos of the planet taken from a rocket out in space some 65 miles. Now, I had no idea how far 65 miles was, but it seemed like a pretty far away. And if God is in heaven, way up there in the clouds somewhere, then God couldn't see me down here, down here on earth. But I was told that God knows and watches each and every one of us, knows what we're doing and even knows what we're thinking. God loves us and guides us in good times and bad. But wait, did that mean that God saw me sneak down into the kitchen and get the cookies? <laughs> and then scoot upstairs to hide them in my little storage box so I had them when I wanted them? That was an unsettling thought. 
My guess is I probably would switch off to my thoughts about how hawks have binocular vision and can see a small rabbit from a mile away. I could understand a mile. That was about as far from my house to the convenience store where I could buy candy. So that I could get, grasp. Birds are so much smaller than humans, I thought. Their eyes are little. And God, well, God had to be so much bigger than humans. So maybe God can see all that there is that's going on. The ponderings of a child. We humans have learned from our various travels into space that the Earth is a complex system. Its atmosphere, ocean, land, life, and energy melding together into a single organism. Through the photos sent back to Earth more recently, now I think I read 18,000 miles away, we have seen the glaciers melt and the waters rise and the storms swirling in Africa on their way to our land. God must see this too. What does God think is going on? For God so loved the world. Now we have translated this to mean, for God so loved the people who inhabit the earth. However, the original Greek word used for what we translate as world is cosmos, and the first definition according to some sources, is not people, but orderly arrangement, as in the orderly, harmonious whole of the universe, as opposed to the previous chaos from which God created our universe. The secondary definition of cosmos can also mean the world, in either the wide sense of the earth and all that inhabits it, or in a much more narrow sense of the human inhabitations of Earth. And certainly this last one fits better with the words that follow that statement, for God so loved the world. So that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Now we could argue that only humankind has the ability to come to believe anything. But I wonder if that too is our own arrogance. Do we really know the capabilities of the other creatures on this planet? Elephants, whales, and even crows have been found to have intelligence and empathy. Some of you are saying, yeah, I get it. And others are probably thinking, oh, such foolishness. But you see, God made everything that is, and God loves everything that God created. But I have wandered from my point, which is the first definition of the Greek cosmos. For God so loved this orderly arrangement of our universe and has seen how chaos continues to destroy the orderliness. God came to humankind to restore creation to its original beautiful order, which God saw and proclaimed as good. Only by God's grace can this world be saved 
and God sent God's Son that we might be saved by following God's call to love God and all our neighbors. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it this way, God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. God came to help, to put the world right again. That certainly adds a different tone to our usual understanding of this passage. Now you might be wondering, how does this all fit with the story of Nicodemus, which was the first part of this reading? Nicodemus only appears in the Gospel of John. So the writer had a purpose to tell it. His is a story of transformation from his position as a Jewish Pharisee to a believer in Jesus Christ as Savior. As a Pharisee, he was educated, had position in the community, knowledgeable about scripture, and surely had some difficulty with Jesus' challenges to the Jewish laws and ways. In the Gospel, just before the introduction of Nicodemus, is the story about Jesus overturning the tables in the temple in Jerusalem. The marketplace was an established practice and the Pharisees were furious, and the people were confused and perhaps frightened. Being a member of the religious elite might have been made it difficult for Nicodemus to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And yet, Nicodemus is spiritually open and curious. He wants to get to know Jesus but not quite ready to go public with that. So he goes to meet Jesus in the dark of night. Almost immediately, our friend Nick here had trouble understanding what Jesus was saying, telling him that the way to the kingdom of God is by being born from above, born of water and spirit. And Nick took him literally, thinking he was being told he had to be born again which he knew was impossible. Jesus confronts him saying, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Poor Nicodemus, he is silenced. As Jesus explains that the Son of Man must be lifted up to save the people. And Nick seems to vanish from scripture. Many stories of Jesus' encounters follow this morning's reading, and then four chapters later, when officers had been sent to arrest Jesus but failed to do so, we find Nicodemus arguing with the other Pharisees for fair treatment of Jesus. It seems Nick, who originally came to Jesus in darkness, whether of light or understanding, has grown stronger in his belief that Jesus just might be the Messiah. And he had the courage to stand up for Jesus in the light of his growing faith. And finally, after Jesus had died on the cross, 
It is Nicodemus who joins Joseph of Arimathea, another secret disciple, in preparing the body for burial. Clearly stated in the scripture, Nick brought an overabundance of myrrh and aloe, which might indicate great honor. After all, he spent a lot of money and brought all this stuff with him. Or it could indicate an inadequate faith in Jesus' resurrection. So maybe Nicodemus was still in the chaos of uncertain faith, but he had come a long way from where he started in our morning's message. This thing called faith is really a process. What John is showing us is some come quickly to faith in Jesus and get up and follow, like those first disciples. But even those had questions and doubts as they were following Jesus. Some take time to come to faith in the man crucified and buried and then raised in the dead. That's a tough concept. And it takes time to come to faith in this person. Now there are 15 chapters between the Nicodemus we meet at the beginning and the Nicodemus who is committed to care for the body of Jesus. It took time for Nicodemus. And we don't even know how strong his faith was. It's just that he was moved to take action. Although God is beyond our full understanding, like that child in the apple tree, we get glimpses of God's love all around us. It is in and through the teachings of Jesus who came to lead and guide us so that we may have eternal life and the beloved world may be restored to its orderly, harmonious whole. Amen. <laughs>